I want to welcome you to the Earn Your Edge podcast. By passion and by practice, we at Altus are driven to decode the difference makers that high performers possess, the ways and means they use to earn their edge, to create separation from the mass, to leave mediocrity in the rearview mirror and travel this pathway to mastery. Be it through nature or nurture or a mixture of both, the journey to uncover these things is the journey that we're on. Hi there, it's Cameron McCormick. And Corey Lumberg. And in this episode of the Earn Your Edge podcast, we're joined by a major champion golfer and the 1993 PGA champion, Paul Azinger, with 12 PGA Tour victories, four Ryder Cup appearances as a player, and one as a winning captain in 2008. He spent more than 300 weeks in the top 10 in the world rankings. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. There are a couple of points through the early years that I wanted to kind of hone in on just my own curiosity, quite frankly. In, in 78, you mentioned in an interview that I read you crossed paths with Mo Norman at John Redmond's range. And then in 79, you caddied for Mickey Wright, arguably the best female player ever to play the game. And you were quoted as saying watching these two gave you a good idea of what great ball striking is all about. What struck out in your mind? My progression for as fast as, you, as it really went, I played all along when I was young. So, yeah, I got the caddy for Mickey Wright when I was 19 years old. And then I, the same year I met, 1979, same year I met Mo Norman on John Redmond's range. And it was really an eye-opener for me. Mickey Wright was loaded with wisdom. She hit it great. She didn't chip and putt all that well that week, I remember. But she made the cut easily. She played in tennis shoes because she had bad feet. And all I can remember was, uh, I believe it was uh, Hogan or maybe Byron Nelson said, she has the greatest swing they'd ever seen. I think it was Hogan that said that. And so I couldn't wait to watch it. Doc Suddy, I was already a year under my belt with Doc Suddy, so... I was slowly but surely becoming a student of the game. But Mickey Wright would say things in her wisdom that were just like on the 10th hole. One day she hooks it to the left into the trees. And it was, you know, walking down the hill. And we, she says to me, as we're walking down the hill to the fairway, she goes, you know, Paul, the shot that gets you into trouble usually gets you out. And sure enough, we got up there and you just had to do it again. And it, it just was... It was such a great perspective for me every time I hit a hook into the bushes or a slice into the woods. Like, man, see if I can do that twice in a row. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so uh, I, I don't know. And then, of course, Mo Norman, just the way he struck it, you realize that there was a right way and a wrong way because you could hear it and you could see the ball. It left like a Nike swoosh, like a check mark. You know, it just was a beautiful thing. It just His ball hovers. Yeah. And then in, in 79, you got the job at Bay Hill working through the summertime and you came back a completely different player the following season. What was it that changed for you, and how did it change at Bay Hill? I hit a lot of balls, and I was around eight different instructors. I didn't pick anyone's brain other than Doc Suddy. And I mainly did most of my training drilling balls at the rain picker just because <laughs> it was one of the eight guys, you know, one of us was in there, yep. the campers, the kids that would come in every couple weeks. I did that for eight weeks, and, you know, to this very day, even if I'm hitting a nine iron, I feel like I'm trying to drill the range picker, mm. even if I want to hit it in the air. To me, that, that feeling of trying to hammer the range picker, it allows me to sometimes get the ball out in front of the face visually, where I can see I can see the ball. You know, I want to see the ball. I don't know how to say it. When I'm making my swing, there's really nothing, no words in it. It's mostly, I think, I'm I'm – The most visual right before impact. Hmm. Right before impact is when I really see the ball leaving as I hope it will. Mm -hmm. That's So, you know, I don't think that two seconds of motion 
is a blank space. But for me, when I'm coming down in, I'm trying to create what I think I want to hit. And usually my attitude is just hit it like you're going to hit the range picker. Yeah. And then I still hit it in any trajectory I want. Yeah. It's weird. Right. But that's the visual. And well, getting the range pickers above ground. Yeah, that's good. what I was going to bring up there. You had another above ground target. But I, I just want to dig into that a little bit. So I just want to make sure I'm interpreting the right way that when you played your best golf, are you saying you were void of any like explicit swing thought, that it was just more of a sensation or a feel that you had, as you described, of you know hitting it at the range picker? It was almost always a feel, but there had to be a key or two that went with it. And uh, those keys, you know, and all the times I ever won at any tournaments, I don't think I ever had this exact same swing key in any of them which is too bad for me but uh <laughs> you can't watch uh, repeat can you but i think that's the way golf is i actually so mm. it's one always one little torquey thing it's never an overhaul you know yeah i realize jordan's not playing the kind of golf he needs to play but he doesn't need lessons he just needs a reminder and, and when a reminder kicks in for somebody like jordan speed it's like oh wow then it's katie bar the door right. you know so mm-hmm I always say no matter how far off you are, you're, you're just an eyelash away yeah. from being great again. So, If you're not already playing a Titleist golf ball, you definitely should be. The all-new Pro V1 and Pro V1X have been redesigned for more speed, more precision, and more consistency than ever before. Most of our clients here at Altus already know that they should be playing a Titleist golf ball, so it's often a question of which is the best for their game. The Pro V1 has a softer feel and lower flight than the Pro V1X, and the Pro V1X has a higher flight with more spin and a firmer feel. Both models provide proven drop and stop greenside control, lasting durability, and unsurpassed quality. Prove how good you can be. Tee up the new Pro V1 or Pro V1X on your next round. And now, this week's episode. Before we move to Welcome to PGA Tour a moment, I want to ask one final question, a specific advice that you might give if you were speaking to a young person or a group of young people that we would define as late bloomers. And, and you're speaking to a late bloomer here, that, a person that came to the game late and got pretty good pretty quick. So this is almost like you're speaking to me as if I was 16 years old. Yeah, I feel like the best thing you can do for yourself as a player is just love hanging around the putting green, the chipping area, and just play a little contest against yourself. You know, the other day, I was out here at my home track by myself. There's no game, and uh, I grabbed two balls. I grabbed a Titleist and a TaylorMade, and I played a match against them. Okay. <laughs> I played a match, a Titleist against a TaylorMade. I alternated which one I would hit off each tee, blah, blah, blah. I always played games when I was a little kid uh, with plat. We used to use the wiffle balls, plastic balls in the backyard and around the house, and I'd always chip to the trunk of a little oak tree. Again, <laughs> something above ground. And it was always, I had a Sneed ball when it was using hard balls. It was a Sneed ball, a Nicholas ball, and a Trevino ball. Wow. And I just, that's how I grew up doing it. And if I'm, if I'm teaching a little kid, if I'm teaching a 16-year-old, I'm just saying, just spend more time around the green. That's beautiful. And uh, if I'm teaching a kid, I'm saying, hey, man, this is a cool game. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, now the question comes to you. You're on the PGA Tour, and you're not teaching a young kid or a 16-year-old. You're teaching a young man to go from good to great to world-class, and that young man is you. What did you realize in the first couple of years on tour needed to happen or needed to change in order for you to climb that ladder of good to great to world-class? I think in the end what I learned how to do was first to willingly put myself in situations that weren't that comfortable. <laughs> That's number one. For example, and can you give me one? Yeah, when you're not comfortable and you will yourself into that spot. And then I think 
you know, I love the way Tiger would hit a tee shot at Augusta right from the very first day. He would spin the club back, bend over, get his tee, and not even watch it. He was so cocky. What do you think it takes for him to get to that place? We've all been there before, you know, but not 81 times, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. So I've been there before where I couldn't wait to hit, even in the most pressure-packed situation. Rider cups. I cannot wait to bury this in there on you. That's the way you feel. But how, how often do you get that? So, and how do you get there to that place? How do you get that kind of confidence where you can be that fun and that cocky well, and, and mean it? And that's another thing that we wanted to make sure that we brought up with you was in all those pressure field situations, we, we've kind of seen quotes and heard you speak about maybe early on, it was, it was a difficult thing to figure out exactly how you needed to cope when that pressure situation presented itself. So what were the lessons that you learned that then ultimately led you to be able to handle those moments in the most pressure field situations out on the, out on the golf course? Well, specifically, I think I learned how to control my heart rate by Beautiful. slowing down my breathing and stuff like that. Then, you know, I read a lot of psychology books like uh, Dr. Dennis Waitley's The Psychology of Winning. I read all kinds of stuff like that. I wanted to, you know, I didn't want any stones unturned. Right. So I got into this psychological aspect within my attitude, within my self-talk, my head and all that. Then I really was able to breathe myself into a calm place when it was really hitting the fan. And I could slow down my walking pace or I think Tiger slows down the way he blinks, to be honest with you. I think he's, <laughs> but, uh, once I did that, then I became the most visual guy. I just decided to get to be the most visual guy would take me to the next level. So really learning how to cope first, embracing, you know, the pressure. I can remember Bert Yancey, I tell him I was too nervous to play golf for a living. And he said, son, you want to be so nervous you can't spit. <laughs> I said, why is that, Bert? And he said, because if you're not, you're in the middle of the pack. That's right. Dang. I don't want to be in the middle of the pack. So that's how I played. Thanks, Bert. I just couldn't wait to get nervous. And then I tell my caddy, God dang, I'm nervous right now. <laughs> and that's, you know, so, but there was plenty of times. I mean, most of, almost, most of the time, once you get going, it's, those nerves are gone. They may show up at the end on a key shot when you look at the board. But once you're in the mix, I mean, I, I definitely will hit on the nerve thing on TV and pressure and all that. But that's just not how it's working for the guy that's winning. The yeah. guy that's winning's playing his butt off, and he's he's feeling it. And when a guy's feeling it like that, there's that's the place that Tiger gets to when you're feeling it. And then how do you maintain it? And how does he feel it the most? How is he so blatantly cocky, but it's like a subliminally? You know, he's not brazenly in your face cocky. Well, you spoke a little bit there to visualization as being one of those strategies that you've used. And in talking to a lot of players, sometimes we hear that it's difficult for them in certain situations to use that visualization or to actively visualize what they want. Is that something that you feel like you've always had, or is that something that you developed along the way at some point? I just It just started happening, and then I became really conscious of it. And once I became really conscious of it, it'd be like, you know, you, you could put hula hoop rings out there on the trajectory you want to hit a shot. I don't know how high off the ground or how far, how far out you'd want it. But you should be able to hit every club in your bag through that same ring. You shouldn't have to move up and down for, per club. Was that similar to the swing thoughts that you would have that would change over time? And once one was well, stale, I, you move on to another? Or was there a lot of different forms that that visualization took for you? The fundamentals for me were simple that the golf swing was two turns and a swish. 
It was not turn, swish, turn. It's turn, turn, swish. And I was taught that you can only get speed one time. It better be the right time. And we all know when that is. And for me, everything was about how to compress a golf ball. And I learned how to compress it. I was lucky they taught me how to squish a golf ball. Now, developing touch and feel and all that didn't happen until I got on tour. Uh, I got a lot from Crenshaw and Kite and Floyd. And Andy Bean helped me so much, it's a joke. Um, these are some dash, I mean, really good short games. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Can we speak a little bit about pulling on that thread of getting highly confident to the extent that it might be cocky in, in 87 maybe when you win for the first time on tour in Phoenix and then you go on to win three times that year as well as finishing second in the Open Championship behind Faldo at Mirafield. Maybe going a little bit deeper in that or even further into your career, the 11 months prior to the PGA Championship that you went on to win where you said, I think you finished in the top three, maybe 10 times in that 11 months. Is that correct? 10 or 11 top threes in like 10 month period. What were you doing in practice to stack the deck in your favor of the best golf coming out and that that mentality of confidence and cockiness? Well, I still miss cuts during that period of time too. Mm -hmm. So I could be up and down, but I mainly was uh, just young and brash and full of self-belief. I think you get, you have so much self-belief, especially when you become visual. Because, like, for me, when I could see the trajectory, and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about seeing it after I make impact, you know, and what it looks like when I finally pick up the ball. I'm mm-hmm. talking about seeing it before I get to impact. Yeah. So that when I look up, I'm never surprised. Because I want that ball right where, I'm sp- where it's supposed to be. If I'm surprised by it, <laughs> you're never surprised by it. Oh, that's way higher than I thought. Man, by the time you make impact, in the time you see that ball, you already know where that ball is supposed to be based on what you just felt. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I was all about seeing it right as I was in my motion at the very end. And then I could drill it, essentially the trajectory I wanted. But I was more seeing it at the very, the, I was seeing the shot at the very last second in my swing. And then the balls, I don't know, it's all, it was always where I expected it to be. It was for a long, long time. If I, usually if I miss a cut, I put it back. And that putting's a whole nother ball of wax now because, <laughs> you know, the putting can be like the ghost and it'll haunt you for your whole life if you, if you talk bad about it or if you talk about it at all. You just can't talk about putting. It's, it's stupid to. It's whatever because as soon as you do that, you know, whatever you're talking about that's good could become the problem. Putting is mm-hmm. a weird deal and uh, I just think it's mental. I always felt like putting was a measure of my heart. And that's why guys are hard on themselves when they miss putts because they think it's a measure of what's inside. Can you express a little bit more about that? I just saying, I mean, like, if you got a putt for bogey from six feet and you know bogey's better than double, yeah. I mean, if you miss it and make double, you let yourself down and you, you know, you can, you could beat yourself up over that. In those situations, then, what was your self-talk like, whether it was a missed putt for birdie, par, or bogey? In order to protect the, weeks the confidence. The weeks I played good, yeah. the weeks I played well, 
nothing bothered me. Mm. You know, for whatever reason, nothing really bothered me. But the truth be told, I didn't miss many. I had a big lead the final round. No, I had a one-shot lead the final round at Bay Hill with Kite and missed about a two-and-a-half-footer on the first hole, but still shot a good score and ended up winning the tournament. But mostly, when you're in that spot, you've made putts all week. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's what I've noticed just being in the broadcast booth and and looking at the stats, you know, and trying to make some – and trying to decide what is really important and what's not necessarily that important. And I've noticed total footage of putts is really important. <laughs> you spoke also to some mysterious quality to putting, putting performance, putting stroke, but you also spoke earlier in the podcast on this – process of every event I won was with a different swing, a different feel. What was that process early in the week like for you trying to find a sensation or feeling that would produce what you're looking for, which is great golf? What was the audition process like? I just was never on the prowl for anything. I just believed what I believed and was doing what I was doing. I think, you know, one day I might want to, you know, let my shoulder stay in there a little longer, Mm -hmm. but generally I more obsessed just whacking the ball like throwing an axe head to a tree i mean there's not a lot of technique going on there and but with golf you're going to get a second result and that's going to be the ball fly so i just look at it like i'm going to take this stick right here and swat that ball Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i really do want it to be that simple um, because i know how to compress it i know how to get the speed in the right spot you know i don't always do it sometimes i'm stiff now but I just literally would be that freed up. I mean, it was always two turns and a swish, though. It was always lower body first. Arms relaxed, turn level. I turned level physically. My swing thoughts were basically arms relaxed, turn level, lower body first, which is my downswing thought, let it release. And so before I drew it back, I was thinking lower body first. I was already on the way down before I drew it back. And then at that point on, it was like I was blank because I was getting ready to drive that ball out of there like I meant business. I'm not just going to hit that ball like I'm going to make some swing. I'm hitting that ball like, (laughs) you know what? You're sitting there, and this is what you're going to do. Do what I say. That's what I'm doing. I'm saying to that ball, you do what I say. (laughs) I'm not mealy-mouthing around. (laughs) That's brilliant. In, uh, in 93, on Wednesday, I think it was, that I read, Mr. Nelson gave you some advice that was impactful to go on and succeed at the PGA Championship. Can you share that with us? Yeah, it was Wednesday evening at Inverness Club, and I ran into Byron Nelson at my locker, talked for a minute. He called me by my first name. Pretty cool. Uh, I've known him, you know, at this point, I've known him for 10 years probably. But, uh, well, he'd known me, we'll say that. (laughs) Yeah, he just said, I said, Mr. Nelson, I said, I'm playing great right now. And I really was. And I said, I'm already a little bit nervous. I said, is there, if you have any advice whatsoever, what would be your advice about the Inverness? And he just said, well, Paul, he says, "Uh, I suppose the greens here are so small at the Inverness Club that if you aim for the center of every one of them, you have a pretty good birdie putt. There you go. that's what and that, that was the end of that. And I led the field in greens and regulation. And I, I mean, I led the field in distance for the week, and I was second in fairway hit. There you go. And then I was 58th in putting and won the turn. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. Doesn't. <laughs> and the topic that we always like to talk to also is 
when we face that inevitable moment of adversity. And yours is unique in that you had this great moment of triumph in 93. And that same week got the call that suggested that something may be up with your health. And we know that you're a cancer survivor and, and yeah. there's no greater risk that or adversity that we face than one to our health. And so I'm just curious if, if you have us, the listeners, in facing that moment, we know that we're all going to experience challenges, but what separates us often is how we choose to respond to that. So I want you to maybe identify a couple of moments that we could hit on that could have us learn something to face our challenges a little bit more effectively. Well, number one is you're not in control. God's in control. I mean, you, you think you're in control because you got a schedule and you're going to work, get everything through your schedule. And, um, but as far as health, I mean, we all eat the healthiest we can, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're all trying to be cardio fit. But something's going to get every, none of us are getting out of here alive. That's the way I look at it. So um, I'm like, all right. So I, I just, after I got sick, I tried to appreciate each day more. Eventually, you get back to normal and playing bad golf irritates you again. Um, but, uh, you know, there's nothing any of us can't overcome, honestly, with a little support and some love. And I just felt like I had so much support through all that. It really, when you get on the other side of something like that, and you look back, it went pretty fast. <laughs> Let's move into some quick hit questions and you certainly need to answer them with a brief responses, but they kind of lend themselves to that type of thing. Is there one shot that defines you or said in a, another way, one shot that you are most proud of when you reflect back on a, a successful career that you've had? Well, you know, I mean, everybody's gonna think I hold two bunker shots that were, you know, they had to go in basically. Right. So that was kind of nice. You know, I, I would say the tee shot I hit on the 71st hole at Inverness was something nobody will ever remember. But I can remember visually seeing the pump house where I used to practice at my home track. And the pump house, it wasn't that big. It was on the very back of the driving range. Uh, it was a brown pump house. And I used to hit balls at that thing. The ball, you know, My goal is to get the ball to trace through the brown of the pump house. And I swear I got on that tee shot on the 71st hole, and I was dehydrated because I just got a roaring cramp in my calf on the hole before that, so I was freaking out. And uh, I saw that pump house, and I striped that thing. I was so happy, and I ended up making birdie there, and I won the tournament in the playoffs. So, uh, but that tee shot is, is probably the best shot I ever hit under pressure, under the circumstances, was that tee shot. Brilliant. And, uh, I mean, other than that, the bunker shot at Jack's tournament was huge. It just was, it just turned out to be huge. So mm -hmm. another question that we ask all of our guests that come on is what's something that is very useful that you found to be very helpful to you that most people are underrating that most people may neglect or don't see the value in with respect to golf. Yes, sir. Well, or, or life, you can drop any kind of wisdom on us. No, I'm going to go golf still. I mean, I'm just saying there, you can't put enough value on drinking that Coke or that beer out of that styrofoam cup setting it down there on the green about a quarter full or half full or full and hitting putts at it. And you won't believe how many times you hit that cup. And guess what? That cup will fit right in that hole. <laughs> and so you cannot putt above ground. That See, when I get to the side of about an eight footer and my ball's to my right and the hole's to my left, and I'm looking at that thinking, man, if that's a styrofoam cup, <laughs> I would never miss it. So you're leaving the flag in every putt. Yeah, I would walk into my putts like that, and I would also – you know, your self-talk is everything. It is everything. So all I want to do is get the ball to roll correctly. Just like I, it's like you 
lobbing the ball underhand, you know, facing the target, uh, like croquet. But then when you straddle it, I don't know. I would just visualize the ball just rolling down there to something above ground. Beautiful. Hard to screw that up. Let's flip it to the opposite. What are the time wasters? The things you either did or you see being done that are overrated and shouldn't be given as much effort as they're being given. Putting to that small cup. Nothing to handcuff you faster than that, you know? And I'll say a couple of things. I think the only club in your bag that can ruin your swing, there's one club in your bag that can ruin your swing, and it ruined Tiger's swing, it, you know, until he it was unruined. It's the driver, you know? There's no other club in the bag that can wreck your swing but the driver. So just be mindful of that when you're out there switching drivers. Pitching wedge or a nine iron is not going to wreck your swing if you're trying stuff. So yeah, love the driver it. will wreck your swing. And I, I don't know. I guess that's about it. Love it, Zinger. We are so appreciative right. that you've joined us here. You've given us a career not only to watch but uh, as a player, but now to listen to and appreciate on the airwaves and on TV, and we can't be thankful enough for that. But I know our listeners are going to get an immense value out of listening to you tell your stories and the wisdom nuggets you dropped for us here today. So really appreciate the time and look forward to seeing you at the next event. Hey, I appreciate it so much. Good luck with your podcast. And... Uh... Go Jordan Speed, my favorite player. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. See ya. Bye-bye. See ya. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. <laughs>